Please use your own keynote speaker. Stefan Molyneux, a Canadian blogger, essayist, author, and host of the Free Domain Radio series of podcasts, living in Mississauga, Southern Ontario. Hope I pronounced that right. Uh, Stefan is a voluntarist who has written numerous articles and smaller essays which have been published on libertarian websites such as Strike the Root, and he has recorded over 1,500 podcasts and written numerous books which are all self-published except for his first, which was published by Publish America. Longview's works cover politics, philosophy, economics, relationships, atheism, and personal freedom. In 2006, Stefan Mondi quit his job in the field of computer software and now works full-time on Free Domain Radio, a philosophical community website which is funded completely through donations. Stefan Mondi was the closing speaker for the 2009 New Hampshire Liberty Forum, and this position was formally taken by Ron Paul in 2008 and John Stossel in 2007. Molyneux uh, was also the open speaker for the Free State Project's Pork Fest, which I was there for. It was a great introduction. So please put your hands together for Stefan Molyneux. Hi, everybody. Good morning. And thank you so much for coming out. Uh, I, was, uh, I just flew in from Canada yesterday, and uh, it's been a while since I've traveled alone. I normally travel with my wife, who takes care of the logistics and so on. And I was really trying to think about how to do this speech really well, because, I mean, you're such an intelligent, educated, well-read audience, I didn't want to do something dumb. So I started going over the speech in my head, and I you know, checked in using those electronic kiosks. I put in all of my information, and then I was so lost in my speech preparation that I wandered off without taking my, my ticket. And uh, so then I thought, oh, I've got to go back and get my ticket, right? So then I went and I had coffee and I sat down and I was working more on the speech. And then I got up and I left my luggage behind. <laughs> I told my wife last night, I was like, honey, you can't let me travel anymore. <laughs> it's like Rain Man takes a holiday. You know? <laughs> I'm an excellent speaker, I'm an excellent speaker. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about the challenges that all you fresh-faced, young, eager, brilliant people are going to face in your life, because I'm not quite so fresh-faced, though still very eager, and I wanted to throw a few, hopefully not useless, coins of wisdom down this year of the years, because you're going to spend a lot of time in your life talking about freedom, and you're going to spend that time talking about freedom in a paradigm called statism. And what I'm going to say is going to equally apply whether you're not so much with the state as a big thing or not so much with the state at all. But you're going to spend a lot of time fighting with people. Now, tell me if you've ever had this scenario. You say, uh, I don't think that the government should run the welfare program. We shouldn't have the welfare state. And then people say, well, who's going to take care of the poor in a free society? And you say, ah, let me look it up. You know, I've got lots of answers. I've got these possibilities. There'll be charity. There's going to be uh, more economic opportunities without the government, lower taxation, more job growth, so blah, blah, blah. And then people will start a puncture. Whatever you put forward, they'll say, well, what about this? Uh, what about this? Uh, you spend your whole time. And eventually, somebody's going to come up with some scenario that you just can't answer. And then you hear, ah, you see, so freedom doesn't work. Right? Don't do that. That is a huge, frustrating, bang your head against the wall until you lose your hair and you can see how that looks. Uh, don't do it. It's really it's not a good idea to do. So I'm going to give you some other ways of approaching that challenging conversation. It's really, really hard for people to think outside the state, right? And I think we all understand that the state is that social agency 
which uses force to achieve its ends. I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, the thugs are the flag, so to speak. And so, getting people to think outside of that paradigm is really, really tough, but it's really essential to do that. So, uh, so let me give you, give you an example, right? So, let's say that the government ran marriages. Right, so so if you want to get married, like I said, everybody has to get married. So you put your, you put your application in, they match you up with someone, and then you get married, and that's how things work. Now, if you would say, I don't think the government should run marriages, what would you do about? Well, then how will people get married? <laughs> I mean, it couldn't happen. How could it possibly happen? What about Stinky Pete? I mean, no one's going to want to marry Joe Pigpen or whoever, right? Because you know the idea of taking a shower just would be incomprehensible, right? So. When you have this system called the state solving problems, asking people to step outside that paradigm and say, what if the state doesn't do these things? People immediately, they need an answer. It's like you create this intellectual vacuum that people need an answer as to how things will work in the absence of the government. And it is a fool's quest, and it is a pointless exercise, and it is futile, and I'm concerned that it's gonna frustrate you to the point where you'll stop talking about freedom. Really, really important. I'll give you another example. Right, so slavery, right? Say American slavery in, in the um, 18th, 19th century. So if you would say uh, we should abolish slavery, right? So people would say, well, I have 500 slaves on my plantation. How will they get jobs? How will each of them get a job? And then the moment you come to some guy who probably couldn't get a job, people will say, well, you see, we can't get rid of slavery. Right? It's really, really important to recognize that once we take the state out of the equation, once we take the initiation of force out of the equation, that solutions will arise that nobody can possibly predict or conceive of or imagine. So if I was talking about this stuff, I don't know, not 1980, right? So I'm talking about this stuff and say, okay, not that old, but let's say I was talking about this stuff in 1980, and I said, well, we should get rid of the post office, the government control of the post office. Well, immediately everybody thinks that no mail is going to get delivered. Right? Because the government delivers mail, and if you stop the government from delivering mail, there'll be no such thing as mail, right? And if I would say, no, 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 because you see, what's going to happen is there's going to be a series of tubes, right, that, uh, that deliver mail electronically uh, through wires and through the air and through radio, and people will have free video conference calling around the world, instantaneous IMs. People would say, oh, come on. I mean, that's just science fiction, right? Because we can't imagine what incredible geysers of human creativity and opportunity are unleashed by the absence of coercion. Nobody, nobody, nobody can predict the future. So I'm going to submit to you that when people say to you, how is freedom going to work? They're attempting to lure you, you know, slowly and deeply and darkly, they're attempting to lure you back into the status paradigm. Because if you say, I know how freedom can work, that's kind of a central planning approach. Because that's what central planners think. That's what government people think. That the future can be predicted. That the future can be planned for. That the future can be managed. That the future can be controlled. But it can be in a state of freedom. So I really want to invite you when you get those questions. Well, what's going to happen if we get rid of the centralized control of whatever it is we're doing? What's going to happen if to not, to not answer the question? Because it is a status premise to say that it can be predicted. People in general, 
I admit, libertarians are pretty good, much better than most people in this area. But people in general have a great deal of trouble with those three magic words. I don't know. Right? It's really, really tough for people to say, I don't know. So you say, well, how will the poor be taken care of in a free society? I don't know. And it doesn't matter. And then people say, well, what do you mean it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter that the poor, I mean, you have to take care of the poor, so how's it going to happen? And I'm not going to support freedom until I know exactly how it's going to happen. But I think we need to have the integrity to say, I don't know. And it doesn't matter. Because the only thing that matters is the morality and the virtue and the ethics of the situation. Let me give you another scenario to illustrate that. Okay, so we get back to the government trying to manage, right? So there's this, this, this rule that says, okay, first thing we do, we, we round up all the fertile women, and then we transport them to marriage camps. And then they get doled out on some algorithm to people who want wives, right? And um, you say, oh, I, that's immoral. You can't kidnap and round up women for a dollar and And people say, well, no, no, but you see, we have to get have marriages, and that's how we, how we achieve that. <laughs> and my, what I focus on these days, which I found to be very effective, is say, OK, let's go back to that first step. Okay, you understand? You want to you know, put these, you know, round them up and farm them off to people for marriages. Let's go back to that first step, where you kidnap them. Right? Because I don't really care what happens after that. Because what matters is you're kidnapping them, right? And this is what is true. Through money and taxation, you are kidnapping money. You are holding guns to people's heads, whether metaphorically or no. And you're taking their money. And then people say, well, what should we do with this money that's taken through force to achieve some good end? It's like, but, but you've already destroyed morality by taking the money to begin with. So then saying, after we steal the money, what good can we do with it is to inject morality after the fact. But if you've already destroyed morality at the very beginning, if, you've already, if you're already kidnapping the women, it doesn't matter how efficient the marriage camps are after that. If you steal people's money to begin with through the initiation of force, does it really matter what happens after that? Of course not. You have to focus on that first step. Because one of the foundational arguments for the state and we were just talking about Sam Harris this morning, he's going to this utilitarian argument as well, is that the reason we justify the state is, I call it the argument from effect, right? Which is that, well, the poor will be taken care of if we have taxation and the welfare state. I mean, there's so much that's wrong with that statement, you could really waste a lot of time pulling it apart. I mean, of course, the first thing that's wrong with that is people think the poor are being taken care of at the moment, right? Which is nonsense, how the poor are doing under the government control of the currency. How the poor are doing under the government control of interest rates. How the poor are doing under government control of education. How the poor are doing under government control of public housing. Well, we've got a permanent underclass, and we is in Canada too. We've got a permanent underclass of people who have virtually no opportunities, no hope, uh, who are surrounded by you know the plagues of wretched education, the plagues of gang warfare from the drug war, the plagues of deflation, the plagues of unemployment, all of which can be traced directly back. The government program. So the first thing, right, people say, well, poor being taken care of now, how will that be reproduced under a free society? Well, it won't be. And they're not being taken care of right now. So you can, you've got to attack that. Don't be fall into the trap of trying to explain how freedom can work. Because I think the first thing that a libertarian needs is humility. I think the first thing that anything needs is humility, which is to have the strength and the courage to say, I don't know and it doesn't matter. 
How many of those 500 slaves, when you free them, will get a job? I don't know. It doesn't matter. Because slavery is immoral. That's the only thing that matters, is that slavery is immoral. Taxation is immoral. Government control of currency is theft through counterfeit. It is immoral. It is immoral. That's the only thing that we need to focus on. Because if people don't accept that argument, all we're doing is we're arguing the effects of immorality. After we steal this money, what are we going to do? No, 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 let's get back to that first step, right? Everybody wants to brush over that first step. You know, you, you ever see those movies where there's some invisible guy, and you know, they got that cheesy set special effects, at some, at least before CGI, right? They have these strings that pick up these things, you see these wet footprints or whatever. And then someone comes in and talcum powder goes in the room, and you see the, the outline of the guy. Well, that's what I call pointing out the gun in the room. Everybody wants to pretend that there's no gun in the room, that the government just has this money, and what are we going to do with it now that the government has it? The government just has this power, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to manage it? Use the Fed to manage the economy properly. Nobody wants to look at the fact that there's force at the very beginning of it. And I would submit to you that if you can't get someone to see the gun in the room, right, if they attempt to erase it through the social contract, it's not, it's not force, you see, because you choose to live here. It's not force, you see, because you can vote. Vote in the suggestion box for slaves. <laughs> so it's, it's really important to, to just focus back on the morality of the situation. Because nobody talks about the government without talking about morality. We want to help the poor. We want to help the poor. But my question has also been, what on earth is wrong with being poor? I mean, I used to have a, a good job as a, a software executive, as an entrepreneur. And I, then I put all that to yell at people on the internet. And, <laughs> and you, like you. And I put all that, and I'm much happier because of it. So I took a 75% pay cut to talk about philosophy, to talk about truth, to talk about ethics, to talk about government freedom and all that. So, according to the government, I am now somebody in need of help. Ah, mental health, right? <laughs> but it's, it's got nothing to do with that, right? It, there's nothing wrong with being poor. Being poor is a choice, right? So, I mean, some guy decides to become a monk. I guess he's now under the party line, but he's close to God around, right? So, that's his particular preference. So, it may not even be a problem that needs to be solved. Anybody ever have a discussion about the roads? <laughs> yeah, okay, so, what about the roads? Well, interesting story, okay. Um, in 1919, a young army captain was uh, assigned to the very first army convoy across America by car. Any guesses as to how many days it took to go from Washington to San Francisco in 1919 by car? Anyone? 62 days, averaging five miles an hour. Or about the same speed I drove on the highway when I first had my daughter in the back. <laughs> Careful. Now that young officer was Dwight Eisenhower. And he was also the Allied commander of the Second World War. He noticed that while American rails, sorry, while, while German railway systems were very easy to destroy, the roads were virtually indestructible. It was really hard to bomb them. If you bombed them, they just filled them in. Whereas if you put a bomb anywhere near a railway line and then to twist the rail even a little bit, it's useless, and it's hard to fix. So he had seen how bad the roads were as a young man. He had tried to fight an enemy and saw how good the roads were, 
And then, of course, in the Cold War, in the 1940s, 1950s, he was concerned that there were going to be, um, there's going to be a nuclear war. And so he wanted roads to connect places so that they could send troops around. They didn't want railway lines because they were easy to destroy. And so this is how the American state highway system was won. So the reason we have these roads is because of the government. So what is it going to look like without the government? Who knows? Jetpacks. No, seriously. I'm going to wait for them seriously. Isn't that the whole reason we get up every morning? Fulfill the Jetsons and finally get, get news of this little Elon. No, but I mean, it could be. Or maybe everybody just works from home. Or maybe teleportation has been developed. Come on, is it any less weird than email me down? No, not really. So, in terms of roads, we've got this whole map of roads that is entirely based upon the initiation of force. So why is it going to look like if there's no gun point to the people to build these roads? It's not going to look anything like it. So saying, well, we have this state system called, called roads, or welfare, or currency, or law, or national defense, or whatever, and say, well, how is that going to be reproduced in a state of freedom? It's not going to be reproduced in a state of freedom. And no one can predict what it's going to look like. And putting on that prognosticatory hat and saying, I'm going to come up, I'm looking at written books about this, so I'm guilty of it, right? But saying this is how it's going to work is a fool's quest. Because it's just, you might as well say, we're going to go on holiday in my Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Because it's all just a made up world. We don't know what the future's going to look like. We don't know what human ingenuity is going to be unleashed in a state of freedom. We have no idea. And I think that humility is saying, I don't know. If I knew everything that was going to happen in the future, I guess I'd be a pretty good decatur, but I don't. Nobody does. It's a fool's quest to imagine that we could know anything like that. I think the other thing to get status to understand is that this very premise is always and inevitably going to lead to corruption. Right? So people said, we want to use this thing to, to, to achieve this good end, to help the poor, to do whatever. But the reality is that benefits always accrue to specific individuals. There's no, there's no such thing as the poor. I mean, there are human beings. And bureaucrats and, and politicians and lobbyists. And it's the latter three who tend to benefit from poverty programs. What is it? I think the statistic is something like 95% of the money that goes to poverty programs never reaches the poor. It's that much overhead for politics and bureaucrats and lobbyists. It's, you couldn't run a charity like that the free market and expect anybody to give you penny. But the benefits in the government always accrue to specific individuals, which means they always have a massive incentive to lobby for the increase of those. Right? So if I can get some law, let's say there's some nasty, corrupt, smelly status, and I got a law passed that said everyone in America has to send me a dollar a year. Ooh, 300, 300 million dollars a year for me, right? So I have a huge, massive, bottomless incentive to keep that law running, to lobby. Either. If I spend $100 million lobbying Congress to get my dollar a year from every American, I'm still up $200 million a year. So I have hundreds of millions of dollars of incentive to keep that program going and to expand it if I can, $1.50. Hey, cost of living goes up, it's tough to lobby. But you all would have $1 worth of incentive to oppose me, right? which is not much of an incentive, and that's the problem, right? That every specific group massively benefits from government transfers of wealth, and those individuals massively benefit. 
and you create entire lobbies, right? So you create an interstate highway system, you create massive public works programs, you create massive government unions, you create um, <coughs> car companies that sell you a lot more cars and they're now heavily invested in those government programs and are going to get involved in politics and lobby. And you're going to get all these people here, the original highway system wasn't even going to go into cities. And it was only lobbying on the part of cities that got those highway systems into the cities. So you fundamentally distort the entire society, the entire incentive structure of society when you start using violence to achieve your ends. And when you remove that violence, it's impossible to guess what is going to occur in the absence of that violence. So I really, really want to encourage you to avoid that conversation. Because you can't win. Some ingenious evil troll is going to come up with some example that you can't answer, right? And then it's like, oh, I guess it doesn't work. There's all these sorts of problems, right? So I thought we could try uh, taking this approach to, uh, if you want to sort of stick your hand up and, and talk, if you've had some particularly nasty, uh, ugly, or repetitive, frustrating kind of conversation about state programs, we could try this approach to see if it if it does any good, or whether I've created some sort of greenhouse where only my own theories work. Anybody got to, this is the part where you all get to talk a little bit. Uh, libertarians, I thought people would be dying for the money. <laughs> you know, if you can get used to speaking in public, that's a good thing for freedom of movement. Anybody? National defense? Anybody? Oh, this. How will we educate our children? How will we educate our children? That is uh, that's a great question. Of course, the premise being that we're educating for them, right? Rather than just boring and indoctrinating them. Yeah, I mean, does anybody know why we have two months of school off in the summer? Farming, right, right, right. Because when schools were invented, 70 to 80% of the US population was involved in farming. Anybody know what the percentage is now? It's 5%, or if you count just the major farmers, it's 2 or 3%, right? And, and even that's relatively high because of government subsidies, right? So, so we've gone 70% down to 2 or 3%, and you still have time off for farming, you know? And it's crazy, right? Because once you, once you put violence into a system, it ceases to change. It, it gets frozen in time. I mean, think, think of the incredible technology advancements in every sphere of human communication since 1870. Right now in 1870, you had a teacher and a blackboard and you know 20, 30, 40 kids in rows. Right? 140 years later, after humanity has gone to the moon and everything has changed, everything is upside down, what do we have as our educational paradigm? No, no, it's changed because as I people pointed this out to me on YouTube, it used to be a blackboard. <laughs> Now, he's a white man. <laughs> That's what we call progress in the state of America. It's flip, baby, it's negative. And that's as far as they've gone. And I, you know, now that they have Wi-Fi in schools, people are getting much better education from putting out the right part and looking something up rather than listening to some tenured teacher breathe dust into their dying brain. <laughs> I'm just gonna gauge that because this is a I mean I know this is a very tech savvy group, so and I know I can see people with glasses, right? So what I'm looking for is to make sure there aren't those two little pinpoints and people looking down at the right side of the right button. So it's just kind of boring what's on Facebook. <laughs> so far so good. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, so how will we get to educate our children? I mean it's, it's insane to think that, that violence can be used to educate children. I mean, there's a fundamental hypocrisy 
that's put forward. And I remember thinking about this even as a, as a kid, which is, you know, if you're a kid and, and you grab some other kid's lunch money or toy or whatever, what do you hear? Don't grab, don't steal, don't take, it's not yours. Right? I remember as a kid when I first learned about how government schools were financed. It's like, but that's how you get your salary. <laughs> Why is it not for me and good for you? I don't understand. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good point. And I would say, I, I don't know how children would be educated. I would question even the very paradigm that children need to be educated, right? Have anybody heard of this unschooling movement? Okay. Um, yeah, so I mean, I've, I've got somebody who's slated to do an interview on the show about this. It blows my mind. I mean, I'm, I go so far in radical thought and stuff just blows my mind. This unschooling thing blows my mind that you just basically talked to. David Friedman about this, right? He's got two kids who had no schooling, right? They just taught themselves, and you would get sort of people in to help out where necessary or whatever. So I, you know, I would even question whether the entire paradigm of educating children is even valid. And that's like I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a good way to do it. I don't think so, because it's enforced through violence. And the one thing you know is that if something is enforced through violence, it's not what people want. And so people say that the government reflects the will of the people. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The iPad reflects the will of the people. <laughs> and the sometimes. But we know that the government does not reflect the will of the people because it has to use force right, to, to, to achieve things. It's like saying kidnapping reflects the will of the person in the back of the van. No. <laughs> because if he wanted to be there, he'd be there. If you have to kidnap him, it does not reflect anything. I think we understand that. So yeah, with education, how will children be educated in a free society? Who says that they have to be educated? We don't know. There's no way to know because even the private schools in the world are almost exclusively shackled with government regulations and maybe we have any government teachers here. How often am I going to get? Yeah, with government teachers, right? And uh, you know. You, you hear people sort of sometimes interview later in life, you know, oh, I remember this one teacher in grade four who was really inspiring. You know, if people think that's a good news story, I think that's a terrible news story. One teacher? <laughs> one out of how many teachers did you have? Like a hundred? Oh, man. It's terrible. Anyway, so yeah, that's one example. Like, I don't, so I don't get sucked into well, how children get educated. It's like, who's to say that they even need to get educated? I mean, we had court astronomers in the Middle Ages who were allowed. We had incredible engineers in the Industrial Revolution who never went to, to school. I was on a, a radio show recently about immigration. Of course, I like to call it moving. <laughs> <laughs> and I pointed out that if any of the standards for education and professionalism had been applied, None of the founding fathers would have made it into America, which is actually kind of funny. Ben Franklin had grade six. Try getting into America with a grade six education. No, no, we can't have you. So that's one example. Did anybody have any, uh, any others? If you remove the central government system, what would prevent things like the military or churches or some other existing lobbying group from taking over and admitting more coercion and force as a replacement from the vacuum that's created. Right, right. This is the, uh, the Terminator Evil Corporation slash social entity, right? Like, if you, if you don't have a government, this is right, if you don't have a government, then you will have uh, this sort of Mad Max, Mohawk, leather, motorcycle, machine gun, 
uh, chaos, rampant uh, dogs living with cats, all of that kind of stuff, uh, running wild in the streets. And then there will be some other new entity that's going to evolve to take over this war and all this sort of stuff, right? Well, um, the reality is that it doesn't happen. I mean, it, there's no historical example of any social entity taking control that I know of. I mean, that doesn't mean. No, no, <laughs> let me finish the sentence. <laughs> um, yeah, there's no, there's no example of a social entity taking control of a society without, without the state. Right, so I mean, you can think of the East India Company in the 18th century, they were dominant in, in trade in the 19th century in, in India, but they were granted a monopoly by the state. So uh, think of a tariff, right? So if, if you're some sweater manufacturer and you want to put a $10 tariff on goods coming into the country, you can't do that without the government. I mean, you, well, you're going to hire guys to go through other people's property and inspect their ships, and, and then you're going to put them in jail, and you're going to, I mean, all this kind of stuff? Of course not, because that's going to make the price of your sweaters 10 times what it used to. Only by offloading the costs to the general population can you achieve these kinds of localized tyrannies. It's completely impossible to do it without the state. Uh, a church, like, so people say to me, well, if there was a government, and then you'd get some private defense agency would suddenly uh, develop all of these great weapons, and you'd get a new government. But that's all nonsense. And that just tells me that people don't, either don't understand the free market or never worked inside it, right? So uh, I was a chief technical officer at some software company that co-founded it. And if we had said, you know, I've had it with this selling. <laughs> I just, I don't like it. I don't like the competition. I don't like the sales pitches. We're just going to go in with guns. Like, that's it. I've had enough. Open it. No, I don't think so. Right? <laughs> well, what would happen? Well, we'd have to buy all the sweater. We'd have to train. We'd have to, right? So what's that going to do? It means that our software is going to languish. Uh, it means that our costs are going to go up. So we're going to be providing worse services to our customers. And we're going to be increasing our costs. Plus, I'm going to have to give guys to programmers. It's not a good idea in any context or situation. Um, yeah, I think it's gone through QA, UC. Um, sorry, inside joke for Anyway, so, so you would have to lower the quality of your products and you would have to increase your costs, which would immediately signal to people that you're, you know, they just wouldn't stay with you, right? They just go to some other place, which could give you, right? To actually raise your own army, to actually fund your own army, this is a hugely expensive proposition. Hugely expensive. It could not be unnoticed in society. You just couldn't. You couldn't do it. And you'd have to place all these orders for a huge amount of weapons, and that would be noticed in society, and people would just say, I don't think so, right? I mean, if I were running some defense agency in a free society, the first thing I would do is say, I'm going to give $100 million to anybody who finds that I'm amassing weapons over and above what I'm contractually obligated to provide. And the money's in escrow with a third party, and if you go and you find my secret cache of black helicopters and laser sharks or whatever, then, then you get $100 million. That's easy, right? You just make it so that people have a huge incentive to, to find you out. So this idea that you can, this is again, the idea that you can reproduce the government in a free society, it's, it's not possible. You can only have this kind of tyranny when you have the costs offloaded to the general population through a monopoly of force. When you don't have that monopoly of force, you simply cannot aggregate that kind of power. Right? The, the idea that there's a monopoly in, in the free market. You know, 90% of the Fortune 500 companies that were around a year ago, 100 years ago, are not around anymore. 90%. I mean, that's how turning the, the market is, even with 
you know, this nasty IP laws and, and other kinds of, of government relations that people have, tariffs and all that kind of stuff. That's how horrible, that's how much capitalism overturns itself, even in the current system, in a free market, would be even, even more of an overturning itself. Uh, without the government, how are we going to make sure that our drugs are safe and our food is safe? Yeah. How are we going to make sure that our drugs are safe? <laughs> Anybody know how many people are on psychotropic medications? Do you know in the worldwide population? It's astounding. It's a hundred million people taking things like the Prozac and, and uh, all this kind of stuff, which has no better than random in clinical trials. Um, so, and that stuff is really bad for you, as far as, I mean, I'm no doctor, right, but this is just what I've read, right, I mean, all these school shootings, why were they happening in the 60s? Because kids weren't being medicated in the 60s, right, this stuff produces homicidal fantasies and blind rages and it causes people to disconnect from reality, it's dangerous stuff, completely illegal and completely out there. I mean, the FDA, there's a Dr. Mary Ruart does some great presentations on this, I had her on the show a little while back, and she pointed out that the FDA was put in place uh, after thalidomide in the 1960s, you may have heard of this, I think it was an anti-nausea agent for pregnant women that resulted in the deaths, I think, of one or two hundred children and some deformities and so on. And she's calculated the millions of deaths that have result, resulted from delayed or denied drugs that are legal and safe in other countries that have been denied uh, in the United States by the FDA. It runs into the millions. This is what happens when you use the state to solve a problem. Right? So, oh, well, the government had approved this previous drug, Thalidomide, which resulted in a few hundred deaths, completely tragic and awful. So let's put a government agency in power, get vastly expanded powers, and we end up with only three to five million dead, because that's called our solution, right? So uh, first of all, I have a question whether the drugs are even that safe right now. And um, uh, secondly, I would say that uh, it is the consumer who wants safe drugs, obviously. And yet, consumers also have the choice to choose unsafe drugs. If I'm dying from some ghastly disease and there's some experimental procedure out there and I'm going to be dead in two weeks, you know, bend me over and shoot me up with whatever you got. I'll roll the dice, you know. I mean, but you can't do that now, right? Unless you can lug yourself into some clinical trial. So everybody's decision about the level of risk of what they want to put up in their bodies is completely up to them. I'm not going to deny somebody dangerous medicine if that's what they want because no human being can tell what the effects are going to be. No human being can make the decision for another human being. We can justifiably and legitimately say, do not initiate force and respect property rights, because those are universal values, and if you want to be bored by more of my thoughts on this, i got a free book on ethics on my website. But nobody can make that decision about what level of danger you're willing to accept from drugs from people. I, nobody can make that decision for you, so uh, it is not beneficial at the moment. The system is not helping people at the moment. In fact, it's harming many, many thousands of times more than it was originally designed to help. And it's everybody's decision about how much safe. If you want a completely safe drug, drink water. I mean, no, if you want a completely safe drug, then you, you can just go for something like aspirin that's been tested for years and years and years, whatever. If you want something more risky, you have that choice. As long as full consent is there, that's everybody's individual choice. What about uh, civil uh, decisions? Like, uh, Okay, so you mean like somebody steals your car? Yeah, like somebody steals my car. I mean, yeah, using force and force is not you know, desirable under any circumstances. 
But if you don't have an enforcement agency that's, you know, has some sort of justification for use of force, then the righteous will be at the mercy of the cruel. Right, right, right. Right, uh, you know, a friend of mine has his Porsche got stolen, and it had a GPS tracking device in it. He went to the cops and he said, my Porsche's been stolen. Sorry, Porsche, but uh, my car's been stolen, it has a GPS tracking device. And they said, we'll look into it. And I went back to Mountain the Donuts or whatever they do. And he called back a couple days later, so we, we had nothing yet, right? So he went to Porsche, he got, right, got them to look into it. They actually located where the car was. He called back, car's right here, can you go and get it? Yeah, we'll, we'll get on that. Munch, munch, munch. And uh, nothing, nothing. They would not go. Because, you know, it's dangerous. Cops want to pull people over for speeding, right? Because this is not dangerous. I guess maybe some places in the South, but. But they don't want to go into a den where people may well. I mean, they're just, so again, the question is what happens right now is just about nothing. How many stolen cars are recovered by the police and returned to their owners? Anybody have that statistic? I bet you it's single digits. I guarantee you it's single digits. So right now, there is no solution. I mean, people say to me, well, why if we didn't have our legal system? <laughs> I can only assume that they've never actually tried to use the legal system. <laughs> I had, a, uh, I had an issue once where um, a broker was selling a lot of stocks for my account and he was churning the account. Oh, right. Okay. So you're me. And, uh, and, and they, I got documents from the company that said, we did illegal things. You know, we did wrong, uh, we shouldn't have done it. I, and so they confessed, and I still couldn't get a, a clear judgment. Right, so, if you, if, so it doesn't work right now. What I would do is, I would say, uh, just have an insurance that says, hey, your car got stolen, we'll just give you a new car. And what that means is that the insurance company has an incentive to work with the car companies to make sure that cars don't get stolen. You know, retina scans, voice prints, thumb, I mean, whatever, right? But there's ways to prevent that. And we all want prevention of crime rather than a cure of crime. I think we all understand that, right? So, you know, what about the voice-activated television, right? So. If you steal it, you can't turn it on. I mean, just things that are off the top of my head, right? I mean, it's not like the cops invented those annoying things that go off when you go out of stores, uh, you know, the beep, beep, beep things. They, they didn't come up. They didn't come from the police. That came from the free market. All of those kinds of solutions around the prevention of that would be there. If somebody did break a contract with you, and I don't want to get into all of the details, there are lots of recourses in a free society short of marching after them with weapons. Um, around economic ostracism, right? You don't get your water, you don't get your electricity until this issue is resolved. There's lots of ways to do it that don't involve the initiation of force. That having been said, I'm certainly no pacifist. The self-defense uh, is perfectly valid morally, but there's lots of options. The last thing that people want to do in a free society is start pulling out guns because nobody wants that stuff around. If it's at all possible to avoid, there's so much that you can do prior to that around prevention and finding ways to have people do something better without, you know, marching around the SWAT teams. You know that old statement that when, when you have a hammer, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And, and that's the problem with the state, right? When was the last time you heard somebody suggest some way of solving a social program, a, so, a social problem that did not involve political action, that did not involve passing law, that did not involve throwing more people in prison? One in 28 children in the United States has parents in the incarceration system. And that's staggering. I mean, America has a higher population of prisoners per capita than China, that evil dictatorship, right? Than Russia, because we won the Cold War. 
So there's lots of ways around theft that, again, and I don't know, I don't want to fall into that trap of here's how it will be solved, but people don't want to have stuff stolen from them. In a free society, job opportunities will be so plentiful and people will have so much money that I mean, only people who are mentally ill will steal. I mean, there's be so little economic incentive to do so and there'll be so much anti-theft stuff in place. And people who are mentally ill, we don't, you know, shouldn't be put in prison, they should get treated, right? So that's sort of my rough answer, if that makes sense. Are you just talking me I'm down or do you have a question? Okay. How would you conduct foreign policy with foreign states without a domestic government? Why wouldn't? <laughs> no, I mean, but, but what foreign policy? I mean, that would. Can you give me an example? Right. So a state threatens to invade. How do you say to them, oh no, please do not invade the one? Oh yeah, so, okay, let me do two minutes. Okay, so let's say there are two farms. So there are two farms, right? One is called the State Farm, not the insurance company, but the State Farm. And the State Farm has all this livestock and uh, it has all these crops and all this gold in the basement and so on, right? And this other farm is just a howling wilderness of bugs and bears and crap like that, right? So if you want to go and take over a piece of land, you don't want to go to the howling wilderness of bears and bugs and leeches and stuff like that. You want to go to the farm which already has domesticated livestock. You don't want to go and, and wrestle the bears down and try and find some moose and cows that you can domesticate. That's a hell of a lot of work. You want to, if you're lazy and you want to steal stuff, you go to the place where everything's already domesticated. So the last place that a foreign government is going to want to invent is a state that invade is a state of society. Because there's no domestic people invade other countries to take control of the tax system. If there's no tax system, what are you taking over? There's no central government that you will take over, that you will now have people giving you their tax money instead of somebody else. So, I mean, the state of society, a couple of nukes, nobody's going to invade you because no nuclear country has ever been invaded. It just doesn't happen. It's the ultimate deterrent. So you don't need to worry about that. Plus, nobody's going to want to invade you anyway because one of the things you're just going to invade in some place with no government, there's no taxes to take over, so it's no, they can't make any money out of it, there's no benefit to it. So I don't think that's, you don't need to worry about that too much. Again, that's just my rough answer. Yeah, I think we have time for one more. Um, I'm pretty sure that there's an example of an anarchist society, Iceland, I'm pretty sure, was anarchist, and at one point it was taken over by another country. It was, and I, I'm not an expert on it, though I do know that the society lasted over a thousand years as a stateless society. <laughs> I don't think America's going to make 350, so it's still doing a lot better. Uh, than most societies. But that's absolutely right, for sure. But um, that is also an example of a pre-technological society, right? So um, uh, a, a society will see other people coming, like you've got spy satellites, so you'll see other people coming. There'll be lots of incentive for all of that. At that time as well, uh, there was individual weapons and individual people. So, you know, 100 guys could take over 50 guys, just based on the exception view in the movie 300. But so you could you can do that uh, because it's just. But now with weapons of mass destruction and all of that, numerical superiority means nothing because of nukes. So I think that paradigm of just taking over because there are more of us, which I think would be a negative for state state of society. I don't think that really applies anymore. It's not a perfect answer, and it's more about it in my book Practical Anarchy if you want to check it out. But that's sort of my answer. Makes sense. One minute. You got one more. One more. Who will have the nukes? Who will? Who has the nukes? Oh, in a free society who has the nukes? Well, um, 
if I were in a free society, let's say that, that, that we're in a free society and we're surrounded by nasty statist places or whatever, right? And the reason that the nasty statist places dislike us is all their best people are coming to the free society because they can just walk over the water, right? Because it's just moving, right? Um, so they get they get mad at us. Well, maybe maybe I would be interested in having some news, right? And I can't imagine that nukes would be more than $300 million a year to run, to operate, to maintain, or whatever, right? So basically, you have to convince people that it's worth a dollar a year in America. It's worth a dollar a year to have a nuclear deterrent. Now, who would have that? Whoever would have that would be the company that can most convince people that it's safe to go with that. Right, so if you're having arguments about, or discussions about the state of society, here's my strong suggestion to you. Say to the person, you are the guy trying to sell me nukes. How are you going to do it? Right? Don't be the guy trying to sell them nukes, because they'll just come up with objections after objections. Put them on the other side of the table. Right? So say, you're trying to sell me your services as the magical nuclear, uh, uh, um, uh, the magical nuclear opposition company or whatever, right? The deterrent company. Right? So how would you do it? So how would you do it? You're trying to sell me your services as the nuclear deterrent company. How would you do it? Because I'm scared you're going to turn those nukes on me to become another government. How are you going to do it? Okay, suppose you did. <laughs> what could we do? What? I would uh, hire only sane people. So, rigorous mental health screenings? Absolutely. Eliminate Congress? Hyper secure location. Hyper secure location. Subject to third party verification, blah, blah, blah. How many people would you need to turn the keys to make it? It would be like 20 people. That would be whatever, right? You would guarantee that there would only be three nukes because that's all you need for your deterrence, and they would only have a range of such and such, and, and they would be. And you would have all of this contract with people that would be, and you'd pay people $10 million if they ever found that you'd broken any of this kind. Like, you would just try and sell as hard as possible to make people secure what it is that you were doing. And if someone else came up with a better idea, they would get the business. And if someone three years from now finds a better deterrent, Sharks with lectures from cannons, I don't know. Then they would uh, they would get the business instead. So you'd be facing a constant competition to reassure people that you would not turn the weapons against them, and that's how you would set up. And there's no I mean people say, well what if, what if, what if but there's no better way to do it. Because right now we have this crazy system where to protect your property, the government takes half your property. <laughs> I mean if you proposed if there was no government and you proposed it, people would think you were insane. <laughs> No, seriously, they would. So what we want to do is, we're really concerned about security. So we're going to have this group of people who are going to invent arbitrary rules and throw you in jail and win and take half your property because we're really concerned about liberty and property rights. People would say, what? <laughs> what? That makes no sense. But because it's aged like evil wine, people think that it makes sense. You, know? <laughs> you have to look at things from the perspective of, I call it the argument from morale, which is initiation of force. And, and Destruction of property rights is immoral, everything else has to flow from there. Because if you don't have that, you've got no basis for suggesting anything about society. Because you have to start with the virtue and the ethics and just stay with that. So anyway, that's 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 it for me. Look at that rousing ending. Thank you so much for your time. And great
So um, 15 minutes from now, we're going to go into the breakout sessions. And before you get up, hold on one second. Before you get up, we, we mentioned that there's been a change in the schedule about the breakout sessions. So um, let me go over it really quickly. The anti-war session is going to be right here. Um, the week uh, session is going to be in the back by where the